When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We got ourselves as a country into this more or less dichotomy somehow. Should we have more policing or should we have less policing? Should we defund or abolish? And it was just not a useful conversation because it's not where most people are. The truth is people want a different and better. People on the left and the right, they want to be safe. They know that the current system is not set up for that, particularly not for minoritized communities. So what we're proposing is something that's different and better. I mean, there's no way to say this except that the current policing structure in America was created in a different time and for a different purpose than what's needed now. Hi, I'm Savante Myrick, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Svante L. Myrick, the mayor of Ithaca, New York. Svante was sworn into office in 2012 and became at 24 the city of Ithaca's youngest mayor and the first mayor of color. He's an alumni of Cornell University because Ithaca is gorgeous, but more importantly, he's a big comic book geek. No, I, he's. <laughs> it goes without saying, if you've not heard of Svante Myrick, look him up. He has been one of the biggest advocates for police reform. He's putting his money where his mouth is, transitioning the city of Ithaca to true community policing. Just a really thoughtful, smart, funny guy. And as soon as I heard about him, we had to have him on this podcast. Yeah. Sharon, what'd you think? I'm so, I'm so glad you reached out and got him on the show because he is he's amazing and he's hilarious. And he is a comic book nerd, which I found to be, you know, whenever we, we meet a comic book nerd, it's you get all lit up from it. So it's just really funny for me to watch. And he's making a real difference for Ithaca, but I think also for hopefully Ithaca becomes a model that other cities and other regions and other states will follow because he's really put a lot of thought into the new policies that he's uh, putting into place. And he's doing it with a lot of care. And I found that to be very inspirational. Yeah, the thoughtful nature the compassionate, the curious nature by which he comes to his decisions, you know, as you'll learn about his upbringing, it's informed by his experiences. And Svante is not a white guy. He mixed race, grew up in Florida, bounced around to Virginia, rural New York. It's these experiences that we have are what shape us. And this is why we need people with diverse experiences helping shepherd decisions and change in our world. And it's just such a fun conversation, such a great guy. And, and I hope we'll have the opportunity to talk to him more. But for now, we hope you enjoy our conversation with our new friend, Svante. Svante, it is so great to have you on the pod. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I am I am thrilled to be here. So Svante, many people know your story. And if they don't, we'll put it in the show notes. We've just read it in the <laughs> intro. Yeah. But I guess the first question we want to ask is before all of that, where are you from? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's, gosh, where to start? In the beginning, I guess, is where a good place to start, Please. which is that I'm from my, my mother. I was, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that that's, makes me unique. No, so my mom had me in Tampa Bay, Florida, and my father had left. He We were down there because he's from Florida. He was enlisted in the Navy. He'd been kicked out. And I was raised down there for about the first year of my life. And then we moved around a lot, spent some time in Virginia, some time in downstate New York, but ended up being raised pretty consistently from age eight onward in Earlville, New York, which is because I could tell everybody listening just went, where? 
might as well be on <laughs> might as well be on the sign now entering Earlville, New York. Where? Eight hundred people, population of eight hundred. Oh, about wow. a th- about a thousand cows. So we were outnumbered. In a, a great place to grow up. It's an adorable little village, one square mile, one stop sign, one pizza place, one store, three churches. <laughs> and my house was the black neighborhood. It was really just us. But worth noting, your mom wasn't black. That's right. So my mom was white, father was black, and very interesting dynamic, increasingly common. But especially from that age, you know, having lived in a bunch of different places, I mean, I'd gone, spent a year and a half in a school that was majority minority. And then to come to a place that's almost entirely white was really interesting. And you'd see people talk to my mom and say, where are these kids? Where are these kids' parents? And she'd say, I'm right here. <laughs> a lot of confusion, especially because she's red hair and freckles. And that's where I get my freckles and where my brother gets his red hair. Wow. Which we, we worked really hard to convince him meant that he was adopted. <laughs> <laughs> My sister did something like that to me as well. So it's, Yeah, uh, kids are cruel. You don't go half. It's funny. Nobody's meaner than a kid. Nobody's meaner than a kid. I mean, grownups will be like, your nose is kind of funny. And kids will be like, you don't belong here. <laughs> like right. very different layers of yeah. playground rules, playground, yeah, exactly. playground just, rules. They just, yeah. they get right into it. Yeah, exactly. And we talk about that a lot on our show, the idea of belonging. In a town that small, were there moments when you felt like you didn't belong? Yeah. Yeah. It's both, right? Because in a town that small, you have moments of deep belonging. Right. You have moments yeah. of Miss Baker who lives next door. And the roses down the street and the Goldens and the Parsons. And you don't just know them. You know their parents and their uncles and their grandparents, and they know all of yours. And you never actually walk past some. When I came to Cornell, that was a big culture shock to me, is that people would walk past you without looking at you, much less smiling and asking how your mom is. So there's, in a small town, there's feelings of, of deep belonging, but you contrast that with certain things would happen that remind you, oh, you're not like everybody else. Yeah. Tell us about it. Well, there's extreme examples. There's like the radical examples, the guy who was arrested and expelled from my school for trying to bring a gun to the school dance. And he had a list of people that he was going to kill. And I was, I was number one. Oh my gosh. For being the black kid. Did that burst a balloon? Because growing up in Alabama, I knew I was Indian because my parents played Indian music on the weekends and made weird food at night. But I thought of myself as a white person because I was assimilating, but there were moments. And so when I was home, I would transform into this Indian kid. But when I was out, I was pretending to be white. I thought I was white, but moments would burst my balloon when someone would say a mean thing or a traumatic thing would happen, right? Was that your experience growing up in this town or were you always very conscious? I think I was always pretty conscious. I mean, the the experience for me, I, who knows how old I was, four, five? It's one of my earliest memories. So whenever, whenever that is, that you get your earliest memories, was, oh, geez, this is embarrassing. But my mom caught me looking in the mirror. It's something that's much more like my brother, I should say, than me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the redheaded one. And she's like, what do you see? And I was like, I see me. And she says, yes. And what do you look like? And she's like, do you look like me? And I, was, and I said, yes. And she said, no. And I said, what do you mean now? And she said, well, I'm white and you're not. And I said, what does that mean? And she told me a bit about what it meant. She actually freaked me out, honestly, in the best possible way. She said, it means you're going to have to work harder than everybody else. It means that people are going to be suspicious of you. It means you may not get the same opportunities that everybody else did. So my mom was actually, I guess she's pre-woke, you'd call it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And really, really always nervous that when she took us from these places, like from Norfolk, Virginia, where my brother was born, and Tampa Bay, and living downstate in Westchester County, when she brought us up to live in Earlville, she made a very conscious effort to learn how to braid hair and have black intellectual writers and music filling up the house. She still, to this day, and my mom's 63, sends me, I mean, she's months ahead of where I am musically. And with the culture, she's sending me the DJ Khaled album. Nice. I was like, when did you even get this? It's not even out yet. And she's like, I know people on the internet. So, and because I think she, for her, it was really important that we not 
that you still be connected. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And she didn't want culture. us to go out into the broader world and not know how to dance. <laughs> she was, get, she yeah. was getting ahead of it for you. Seriously, yeah. 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 I think she was. So, so, but what that meant was that there were even these ham handed attempts, you'd often run into black jokes. A lot of black jokes, like, what do you call it? Actually, my favorite one, <laughs> whenever I'd stumble on kids doing that. And they would always, most of the people I grew up with were very kind. And even the, the most ignorant childlike jokes were just that. They were just jokes. So they would often go, but not you. It doesn't count for you. because you're, you're, you're not one of them. Exactly. You're yeah. not really black. And I was like, I'm the only black person you know. To what are you comparing? So I would always say, what do you call a, do you guys know this one? What do you call a black airline pilot? What? A pilot, you racist. And <laughs> that's a great, and that's a great. <laughs> I braced myself for that one, Savante. I was like, what is he going to say? Good luck. I could feel your PR team getting mad at me. <laughs> it always gets, puts everybody on edge. And <laughs> you develop little mechanisms to diffuse humor while still staking out ways to say, I won't be casually disrespected, but I also, I don't want to get in a fist fight every day of my life. Of course. So yeah, and there were, and there were certain, I think most of my bubbles actually broke later when it came time to actually, when you found out that there were people that wouldn't date you because you were black. That was like a, whoa, I thought this was something that was interesting, but unimportant about me, but you're saying that it will actually have impacts in my life. Actually, I, and I remember that it was actually the young woman I ended up going to prom with, who was a great friend through, throughout my entire life, but it was second grade, maybe third grade. We got the first history lesson about slavery. And just, you could tell some of my classmates were just stunned. And I wanted to like melt into the floor because I could see them looking over at me oh, this happened, this happened to black people. And this is, and I remember she stood up and she said, we would never let that happen now. This is a little second grade girl. We would never let that happen now. Savante is black and we love him. And if anybody tried to make him a slave, we would stop him. And it's so, and it's such a silly small thing. And again, I was mortified. I much would have rather preferred that, but it was so meaningful. I didn't know then how much it would mean for me to be able to go throughout my life in that school, knowing that there were people who had my back. She was your ally. Yes, 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 yes. And actually, I think that there's, I think there's a lesson in there for everybody who would be allies. And I think we too often put folks in a box. It's like, if you're white, then you're part of the problem. No, it's complex. It's nuanced. Yeah. There's a 30-question survey to understand where you fit in the matrix, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think telling more stories, they give people an opportunity to, to say, who do you want to be in this system and in this society? Are you going to be the little girl who stands up and says, we would not allow this to happen again, and we're on your side? Mm -hmm. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a lawyer. Honestly, anything that allowed me to... So I was always small. I should explain that. That my sister, my two brothers were taller than me my whole life, way more fit. I was bespectacled, asthmatic, and portly, I think is the word. <laughs> and I mean, between the three of them, there wasn't a record. They broke from football to basketball. And I was in my... I was in the football stands reading comic books while they performed. And so for me, the physical world was always bewildering. So I wanted to be, well, a superhero at first, because I was reading a lot of comics. I'm sorry, I got to ask. Uh, Clearly, yes. All right. What comic Which, books were you reading in right. that stand? <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you for asking. We can go deep. X-Men was actually my first love. X-Men was my first love. And is I think it happened so often. It was because my oldest brother brought home an X-Men comic book, like one. And he read it once and was like, whatever. But your older brother's reading it. And so I was like, I read it 25 times. <laughs> yeah. I started, I would scrape around for change in the couches. So I wanted to be Wolverine. But if we're going to get really specific, oh, I ended up thinking it. that the best thing to be would be to combine the powers. I wanted Colossus's skin. Unbreakable metal. Exactly. Wolverine's skeleton and claws. Unbreakable adamantium. Yeah. Thank you. I wanted Archangel, not Angel, but Archangel. Archangel, James. so cool. Oh, That's man. That's what I'm saying. And then Magneto's powers. At that point, what could hurt you? 
I, to be clear, there's a bit of a metal finish you got going. There's a lot. And, and again, if we're going to get into, oh, so you really didn't want to be hurt by anything. It's like, yeah, yeah maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. it's possible. But I did. I figured out pretty soon any kind of thinky-talky work was going to be better than Dewey. Yeah, Professor X is the most powerful one, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I wanted to do any kind of work where I could think and talk for a living. And in part, because that's that was all I did as a child. My mom would be like, go talk to somebody else, please. And I'm like, I haven't ex- finished explaining to you. <laughs> no, but you don't yet understand that the Shire was not fully safe when they returned. They still had some work to do. In the hob- and she's like, oh, my God. So any of the thinky-talky jobs really applied to me, especially being a lawyer. I thought I was going to be a journalist, maybe, because I read constantly. I, I started, I worked at the grocery store. And my manager, who always liked me, we always got along, the owner of the grocery store, but he teased me because every time he came in the break room, I read every single newspaper they had on the on the newsstand every day, including the tabloids. So like the adventures of Bat Boy I was up on, like I knew about the, the six-headed octuplets that had been born <laughs> in, in India that the American government didn't want us to know about. And so the way I experienced the outside world was through the news and experience politics through the news. So when I came to school, actually, when I came to Cornell, it was to be a journalist. I came to study communication. But something changed because you decided to run for, and I know it's not technically called city council, but you ran for council. Yeah. What inspires a college kid who's popping into this college town? Ithaca is gorgeous. I'm saying it on the record. (laughs) Where did that audacity come from, Sante? So some of these decisions are made for you. I came to be a journalist and my professors were like, no. <laughs> you, <laughs> it's like, I'm a good writer. And they're like, are you though? <laughs> and really what I discovered is that the reason I want to be a journalist is because I had I was trimming my own sails. At the time, and it's impossible to explain to people younger than us, but the people in politics were not, they had names like George Herbert Walker Bush and William Jefferson Clinton. And I thought, well, you got a mixed race kid with a strange name and big ears. He can't go into politics. And then a and mixed then. race kid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So 07, I actually had a choice. In 2007, my junior year, a friend of mine had a connection with Senator Barack Obama's office, Senate office in Illinois. And I was going to either go intern for him or I was going to run to be on the council, the council that I'd been covering in those for the student newspaper and couldn't shut up about and kept bothering the council members after the meetings and telling them how they should have voted. And <laughs> they were finally- You were that kid. I was that kid. I was exactly that kid. The same thing, like bothering my mom. And in a similar way, put up or shut up. And I decided, I said, Barack Obama's not going anywhere. He's going to be in the Senate forever. I can't, with that name and that biography, he's not, there's no place higher for him to go. So he'll still be there. Let me try to do this on my own, and I can always go work for him later. So that was the first in a series of bad decisions. I disagree. No, hang <laughs> yeah. on. Really quick. Hold on. Really quick. Because the reason we had you on this podcast isn't this fascinating story that you've been telling us, and it's amazing, and I want you on my comic book podcast, by the That's, way. <laughs> done. But no, in all seriousness, you made the right decision, Svante. I say that as a compliment, as a I'm not worthy. The things you're doing and you're challenging that I don't live in Ithaca, but the thing you're trying to do, which we're going to talk about in a second, or you've been trying to do and you've been advocating for, that wouldn't have happened if you went and worked for Senator Obama back then. Yeah, I guess that's right. And I, think I, the, I, I guess I would have said is the universe has a way. It does. It does have a way. I often think of, too, of if I'd gone to Princeton. So I chose to go to Cornell instead of Princeton because there are three reasons. First is that I was, was closer to home and closer to my family. The second is because Ithaca is gorgeous, as you said. When I toured this campus, I just fell in love with it. The waterfalls, the cliffs, the hills. And then the third reason is I didn't get into Princeton. And- <laughs> I thought you were going to say in-state tuition, I thought. No. <laughs> no, they said, thanks, but no thanks. And so I often think about that. If I had been, everything worked exactly like it was supposed to. The adventure that I've been on these last 14, 15 years in public life and in office and the friends I've made and the just pure joy of living this life of service 
would not have happened if I'd gone to Princeton or gone to work for the senator. So I'm with you. I mostly think I made the right <laughs> choice, though there are times I watched and actually the guys from Pod Save America, I was telling them that I knew them when they were at the inauguration, well before they were famous, but I saw them sitting in the crowd and I knew exactly who John Favreau in particular was. And I was like, that could have been me, damn it. <laughs> so there are moments when I, although, when although I think of it. Fabs will say on the air when he's talking to people in the Biden administration, he's like, yeah, but I read underwear ads for a living now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And those Tommy Johns are, they sound very comfortable. I'm all about my tushy now, you know. Is it my tushy? <laughs> so, so yeah, I think I'm with you. I think everything worked out like it was supposed to. So Savante, I would be remiss if I didn't veer this conversation hard left into the thing I wanted to talk to you about that, that I think that's put your name even more in the stage lately beyond being one of the youngest mayors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's Magneto. Yeah, exactly. No. I mean, just, come on. Magneto, <laughs> Professor X. I mean, yeah. it's more of a Malcolm X character versus a Martin character. That's exactly anyway. what it was. Yeah. yeah. No, community policing. Yes. It's been a year. A lot yeah. of people saying things, marketing slogans as a former marketer that work or don't work that have lit up the right when you say defund, et cetera. Yeah. But you put forward, and this is a compliment, some pretty put up or shut up. You yeah. put together a policy <laughs> or a proposal because of how things are netting out currently, but a few months ago, and then you aired it in GQ first. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Not- I love that of all places it <laughs> turned up in GQ first. It's, Tell us what you told the fine reporters at GQ. Oh, what what gosh. what Community policing, what is your proposal? What was, is, was, will be your vision for policing in 21st century Ithaca? Yeah. And I will say, because it's funny you brought it up, (laughs) not the ideal way to roll it out. But, well, I just didn't know. I was really excited to talk to Wes Lowry, who's a very- Yeah, yeah, of course. He's an incredible journalist and won a Pulitzer for his his work covering police reform and police brutality. Yep. And was with the Washington Post, which is how I knew him. I called him and he wanted to talk about it. And he says, oh, by the way, I'm with GQ now. And I was like, cool. I always wanted to be in GQ. But whatever. Yeah. It was fine. It worked out. But <laughs> right. much ribbing. Ribbing as a friend, but still legit cool. Yeah. You, yeah, get, was, you get cool points in my book. For yeah. Me. That's a really cool place to, to have this published for the first well, time. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody should tell my brothers who are like, this does not make you cool. Or the entire right, <laughs> or the entire right side of America. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true too. He's like, just to be clear, because I made it in Rolling Stone too for similar some of my drug reform work. And they're like, that does not make you a rock star. And being in GQ does not make you fashionable. <laughs> so just just keep your head on straight. I'm like, okay, good. It's good to have brothers, I suppose. Yeah. And our proposal was simply this. You touched on something that's really important, which is that we got ourselves as a country into this more or less dichotomy somehow should we have more policing or should we have less policing should it be should we defund or abolish and and it was not only unhelpful marketing wise it was just not a useful conversation because it's not where most people are the truth is in the middle the truth is yeah the, the truth is the truth is people want a different and better yeah. people on the left and right. the right it's not that they yeah. want more police or less. they want to be safe and they know that the current system is not set up for that, particularly not for minoritized communities. So what we're proposing is something that's different and better. It's a larger public safety footprint, but it's actually a new department completely that's going to replace the Ithaca Police Department. It's going to be a Department of Public Safety and Community Solutions, which will have some armed personnel and some unarmed personnel. Be able to respond to the calls. I mean, there's, there's no way to say this except that the current policing structure in America is an antique it was created in a different time and for a different purpose than what's needed now. And we've just been rocking with it in the same way since the 1800s. We've always, we're doing it this way because we've always been doing it. It's the way it's exactly. always been done. Exactly. And it's not actually, it's not even working for the officers. When you talk to police officers now, they know that they don't have the same trust, that they don't have the trust they need from the communities they police. They're not engaged in positive ways. The workload is too high, and they're being asked to do stuff that is in no way related to law enforcement. I mean, 35% of the calls we send our police on here in the city of Ithaca, 35% of them, we know before they even dispatch, don't result in an arrest. Never. So why are we sending 
armed uniformed officers to respond to these calls? Well, because they're open. That's all we got. Yeah, there's a long joke that I love. I think it's a Norm Macdonald joke. I won't waste your time with it here because the point of the joke is to waste a lot of time. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Do it. I love it. I love it. I'll give you the very short version, which is that Moth flies into a dentist's office, flies in the window and sits. And the dentist says, what can I do for you? And the Moth says, thank you for asking. Coming from work, I'm headed home and I'm, I can't face either anymore. Mr. Jackson, my boss at work, the moth factory where I work, I've worked for 25 years and he doesn't recognize my value. He won't promote me, but he won't fire me either. It's almost like, I don't know what Mr. Jackson wants from me. I think he just enjoys having power over me. And that's having an effect on my marriage with Sylvia, my moth wife, <laughs> who, who I still love in my bones, but things haven't been the same really since our kids, you know, Tommy and Jane, our two little beautiful moth kids, they can tell I'm not the moth I used to be. I look at Tommy looking up at me and I think, what kind of moth do I want him to be? Do I want him to end up like his father in a loveless marriage with a job and a boss that doesn't respect me? And how can I perform? How can I be the moth husband, the moth father, and the moth employee that I want to be? These are the things that have me feeling trapped right now. (laughs) And the dentist says, well, that's, fine, but it sounds to me like you need a therapist or or maybe a psychologist. Why did you come into my office? And the moth says, well, your light was on. (laughs) I love me some Norm MacDonald, man. Oh my God. Listen, there is a 40 minute, I'll have to tell you some other, when I was getting my first tattoo, there's a 40 minute version of that joke. We're putting it, we're putting it in the show notes and we're going to dig into that tattoo thing in just a second. No, makes people furious when they get to the punchline. They're like, I cannot believe you just wasted all of my time. (laughs) So anyway, but that's, it's the same. It's like, why are you here? Well, your light was on. So why did we call the police? Because they're open. That's all the only number I know to call, right? It's the only number I know to call. And then the only 24-7 emergency response, when obviously there are emergency responses that we need, even things that, so, and it's become popular now to think about alternative mental health response. Shouldn't we have social workers and, and mental health professionals responding to mental health crises? And yes, we should. And in Ithaca, we do. And we're expanding that program. But there's a whole other category of things too. When your bike has been stolen, right? There's no need for an armed person to show up to do what? To arrest you. I mean, the only thing they do when they come, they take a report. They'll take pictures here where it's locked up. This is the make and model of the bike. Or if there's been a car accident where you Insurance papers for insurance. Exactly, for insurance. And what we found, particularly in minoritized communities, those communities are not calling because they're nervous about the response. They don't trust that when the police show up, they'll treat them fairly or treat them with respect, or they're just nervous, period, being around somebody with a weapon, particularly if you have past trauma. And after the year that we've been through and experiencing virtually by watching on television and watching on our cell phones, all of this footage, just about everybody has now has traumatic experiences with the police. So what our new model does is allow our law enforcement officers to focus on law enforcement. It frees up their time to focus on the crimes that can actually be diverted and prevented, while also giving us another tool in the toolkit to build out community-based solutions, unarmed solutions, and hopefully will lead to fewer conflicts, less instances of police violence and brutality, and greater trust and engagement with the public safety apparatus from all communities. That's fine and good. And I fully support this, believe it. Believe oh, me. good. We can end here then. Yeah, done. <laughs> <laughs> but reality, and maybe not just specific you, but these thoughtful articulations that are measured and fact and data-based, that's not the character that gets painted of what you're trying to do, is it? No. And that's part of the problem with to be quoted is to be misquoted because that's the level of complexity there is in human communication. Is it to really fully convey an idea? It takes time and most folks just don't have time. We see headlines. We don't even see headlines. We see the f- reframing of those headlines on Fox News or on Twitter and we just decide good, bad, safe, unsafe. Is this idea supported by my team or is it not supported by my team? Yeah. There's almost and, a zero nuance. Right, right. right. Yeah. And then the nuances, 
is really important. And it's something that I haven't always gotten right myself, but it's something we really strive to do. Because I think when you come up with, as a progressive, I find that that reality has a progressive bias. <laughs> but I also think that reality is more complex. There's no one ideology that's going to be able to, to build a system that responds to what we need. If you just look for just the capitalist solution to a problem, if you look for just the socialist solution to a problem, if you look for just a Republican or Democratic solution to a problem, you're not going to find it. Because most of the world lives in a more... In the gray. Exactly, in a more complicated area. That's why I often I often say this is why mayors are more popular than any other politicians. Because I mean, you're on the after, ground? Well, it's because we're better looking, but it's also because... <laughs> No, it's yeah, exactly, because we're on the ground. And because being on the ground, you can't get away with saying, well, this is the pure socialist solution to blank. And we're going right. to do that because no pure solution survives first contact with reality. And we live in reality in a way that United States senators just don't. So I think I often say there's three political parties in America there's Democrats, Republicans, and mayors. Local, right? <laughs> local, local. Local, yeah. What has the response been from your local community? There's been a couple different responses. Overwhelmingly positive and supportive. The Common Council adopted the plan. That's our version of a city council adopted the plan unanimously, 10 to 0. Last That's month. great. Yeah, and there's quite a lot of support for moving forward with these changes and these reforms. But there's, there's nervousness and fear, too. Those people are afraid, does this mean that I won't have protection when I need it? Does this mean that if I call for help, nobody's going to show up? And and I do, there is a smaller percentage of the population, but it's very real, that believes that police violence and the impingement of the civil rights, especially of poor folks and black folks, is actually just a necessary, if unfortunate, but a necessary side effect of having a safe society. They think it's a shame that what happened to George Floyd, but look, our police have to be able to do these things or else there's no way that we're going to be safe. And breaking out of that paradigm, breaking out of that thinking, just acknowledging it straight up and saying, this isn't necessary. It's not necessary for us to incarcerate more people than anywhere else, not just in the developed world, anywhere else in the world, period, in order to have a safe country. And we know that because many of those other countries that lock people up less, that abuse their civil rights less, are actually safer than us and, and by every metric. But what about the entrenched interests? I grew up in the South and there's the blank industrial complex. We had the, and in the South, the prison industrial complex, right? I've seen more than enough John Oliver pieces on that. But, and I know you probably have to choose your words carefully and thoughtfully, I should say, but how do police feel about what you're proposing? Because you're taking something from them, even though it's yeah. work, maybe they don't want to do. Yeah. And there's much nervousness on that front. The officers, they're the first ones to tell you that the profession has to change. They're the first ones to say that there's too much work and this needs, they need more support. But when it comes to local government, I mean, the only thing people hate more than the status quo is change of any kind. <laughs> so, so you're stuck in this, you're locked in this box where they say, this has to change. And you say, here's how it'll change. And they go, oh, I'm nervous about that. Please, I'm nervous about that. I changed my mind. I don't want to see any changes. So, and for them, it's their livelihood. And it's more than that. It's their identity. And so there's much nervousness. They were opposed to the plan. The police union was opposed to the plan. But now that it's been adopted, they've committed to open lines of communication and they're meeting with us regularly as we design the new department and figure out how we can move forward together. Because you try to strive for win-win solutions, but you're not always going to get there. Sometimes you got to make a call, say, we're moving forward. We know the police union doesn't want this, but the needs of the community come first and are paramount. And in fact, we all of us work for the community. So when the community says they want it, we got to figure out how to, how to get it for them. But all those use of the, the entrenched interest, that's a real thing. There's a reason that it's called being sent upstate when you get sent to prison. It's because so many prisons were built in upstate New York, in part as, as job creation factories. When the actual factories were leaving, were moving to the south, moving west, and moving out of the country, a lot of communities in upstate New York reorganized their economies around, around these prisons that would send almost like they were crops to be harvested 
black and brown folks from New York City and from downstate for imprisonment in upstate communities. So it's real. It's it's real up here. It, it's real everywhere that there are existing interests that, that are opposed to true reform. Because you're a fellow nerd, I now know this. <laughs> I'm reminded of a quote by Spock, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few sometimes. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Go ahead, sorry. Well, I was just going to say much appreciation for Spock. And and I'm trying to, in my own life, be less Spock-like. <laughs> Very much, I think, us nerds, or those of us who read a lot as children. Maybe I'll put it that way. That's a kinder way to <laughs> You don't want to be Kirk. You want to be. We all want to be Picard. That's the one you Picard, want. Picard, because he's the perfect mix. He's the mix between that. Well, right. So trying to recognize that for me, I can get really excited when I make all the pieces fit on paper. Yeah. And it's like, oh, guys, I figured it out. As you almost come out of your cave waving this paper around. Everyone, I figured it out. This is the way it's going to be, and it's going to be better for everyone. But if they don't feel that way, if they don't perceive that, you got to do a lot of work to make people to reassure people that these changes are going to be in their best interest. Five, 10 years from now, when all is said and done, whether you're in this office or in another, or co-hosting a comic book podcast with me. Yes. yes. (laughs) uh, How are you going to look back and know if this experiment, if this hypothesis of yours worked or didn't work? Yeah. I think it's actually, there's some pretty straightforward metrics. I mean, to be Spock-like again for a second. If crime goes down and calls for service go up, right? If more people are calling and there are fewer crimes in the community, then we'll know that it worked. If we have our public safety employees, both the armed and the unarmed, staying on the job longer than their mandated 20 years, you know, right now, police officers can retire after 20 years, and most are. They just get to 20 and they're, and they're so burnt out that they retire then we'll know that it's working. If the average life expectancy in the city of Ithaca increases, then we'll know that this was successful. If property values and business investment increases, then we'll know that this was successful. So there are a bunch of numbers. There are metrics that we intend to measure to make sure that it is working. But it also has to be about what it feels like to live here. Because you can build a very safe city with low crime that feels terrible to live in. Think of 1984. It's not a lot of not a lot of crime happening in 1984. Not the year. It was, it was actually much more dangerous in 1984 than it is now. But than in Orwell's meant, book. Yeah. The, yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Orwell's book. So you can live in a safe community where there are three officers on every corner, and it feels like you are living in a police state, or you can live in a community where you sleep well at night and you wake up with the full confidence that whatever it is you have to do that day from going to work and dropping your kids off at school to them walking home from school by themselves to going for a a walk in the middle of the night, or maybe you're just staying in your apartment and watching Marvel movies on repeat, guilty. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. That you will feel safe and comfortable and that you will know that the odds of something bad happening to you are very low. And you can rest well in the assurance that if something bad does happen to you, there's a number you can call and that the response that shows up will be appropriate. It will be culturally sensitive and it will be supportive to whatever your need is in that moment, whether it's because you're in severe danger or because you just need somebody to talk to. There's a CEO that I become friends with, this guy named John Pepper, and he says something like, it's not what you do, it's how you make people feel. And that that was like management advice that he was giving me, but I think it applies to policy. It's not just what you do, it's how you make people feel about it. For sure, 100%. And I think this, I actually think this is where the police have gotten in their own way time and, and time again. I think they're so ingrained in their own culture. And you'll actually hear this from a lot of folks who are on the, the right side of this argument, not the correct side, but the right side of this argument, which is everything's going to be okay if you just follow commands, follow orders. When we show up on the scene and I'm wearing my uniform and I'm in my gun, I have my gun and the lights are flashing on my big car, everyone should feel safer. And if I speak authoritatively and give orders, that will calm the situation down. And just recognizing that for so many people, that has never been true. 
and that for an increasing percentage of the population, it's becoming untrue. It's scary. It's scary for some of us. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. If you've grown up in, for some people, because of direct experience, right? If you've seen your uncle killed at the hands of the police, or if you saw your brother arrested, thrown on the ground and put in handcuffs, or if like all of us did, if you watched George Floyd be murdered, we're in, if you're in New York, Mythica. Eric Garner. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But no yeah. matter how far away, we might be thousands of miles away from where Eric Gardner was killed, but we experienced it from six feet away. That's how we watched that footage. We watched George Floyd be killed from 15 feet away. And it is only actually normal and natural that a fight or flight response will kick in when face-to-face with an officer. And the only way to combat that, we really have to combat that by by changing both the reality and the perception. And the officers themselves have a role to play there in prioritizing the escalation and doing community engagement work, making sure that the people on your beat and on your shift know you and feel comfortable you when there's not an emergency. The best officers, time and time again, the best officers, the ones who make people feel safe, the ones that most people talk to so they help solve crimes, are the ones that get out of their cars and talk to people check in on folks, build community. That's why our new department was tentatively named the Department of Public Safety and Community Solutions. You brought up the word trauma before when you were talking about all of these issues. And I think that is such a key word because we really were all traumatized by watching so much of that footage over the past year. And it's happened. So different communities, again, experience this differently. There are some folks who it was Rodney King. Right. That was a turning point where they went, oh my God. And then there were other folks for whom it was Trayvon Martin Mm -hmm. and others for whom it was Michael Brown and others for whom it was Breonna Taylor. But here's what's clear is that when there are more cameras everywhere, more of these incidents are being captured, which actually confirms that for, particularly for Black Americans, that these are stories that have been known in the community for generations. That it didn't take Rodney King for us to know about, be careful, here's what happened to your great uncle. Be careful, your great grandfather had this experience. Don't drive in Alabama at night. And you shouldn't have picked on Alabama except- <laughs> No, it's fine. it's fine. No, but I'm, but I'm reminded of, there's an SNL, to so bring it back to SNL, right? There's an SNL sketch. I think Chappelle was hosting, and it's, it's a skit of showing Chappelle and Chris Rock are the black friends at their white friends' election oh, yeah, watch I saw party. That. I saw that. <laughs> and the results that, come out, and the only two people that were not surprised that's right. were Dave and Chris. That's exactly right. With a go, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. something they've been living. It's a lived thing. And we're all, myself included, to a degree, right? We're all playing catch up. But now that we're all aware, there's no excuse to not to want to back. think about thoughtful change. Yeah, we can't yeah. go back to what it was like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was understandable before to say, surely it can't be that bad. Surely you're, this process we undertook in Ithaca, I didn't just go into a cave and come out with a paper that I was waving around. I figured it out. Here's the new solution. We did 10 months worth of deep community engagement, surveys and town halls, focus groups, one-on-one interviews, and especially in vulnerable communities here, I mean, minoritized communities and the poor. What over and over again is they felt dehumanized by police interactions. It was one engagement after another where it was impossible. It's the kind of thing that usually gets swept under the rug in policy discussions where they say, I know he pulled me over because of what I looked like. I know he was speaking to me in that tone of voice. And usually policymakers will go, but were you going five miles over the speed limit? Well, fine, then you deserve a ticket. And he was speaking to you some way. I don't know about that. It's two sides of every story, right? But once you hear it over and over and over again, it moves out of the realm of anecdote and into the realm of data. And once you have that data, like you said, Sharon, you just can't look away from it and you can't go back. Svante, if you could give a piece of advice to your younger self, that young man in Florida who was living a harder life, what would you tell him? It's a good question. I would tell, what advice would I tell him? I would tell him to keep your family close. I would tell him to relax a little bit 
it's a little too high strung, especially in high school and college. I tell them to find a way to build better personal relationships, especially especially romantic relationships. I really bungled that in a way that is that's hurt myself and and people I love, and but that otherwise that your life is going to get better every single year. I mean, from that little kid in Florida till now, every single year has been better, been better than the year before. That's so great. Well, Svante, I want to. I would love to spend another hour on another podcast, <laughs> even about if comic books. Even about if, comic books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listen, count me in. Get thousand percent. <laughs> He's going to call you as yes. for a follow up for sure. <laughs> but we go through speed round with all of our guests, and I think you have earned yourself a speed round. Are you ready for that, Savante? Oh, okay. Yes, I'm ready. Wrong answer. No one's ever ready for speed <laughs> Nobody, round. Is no one ever ready? <laughs> no one's okay. ever ready. What is one thing about you that no one expects? That no one expects that I'm a drummer. I All right. Not, cool. I do not look or... You're a really cool nerd, one. dude. Well, you, thank, did, you did belong in Rolling Stone. I, I don't, think so. I don't, yeah. I don't believe your brothers. I don't agree with them. Thank you. Somebody's on my side. Finally. <laughs> What is a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Oh, that I relate to. I mean, Lord of the Rings is just the best for this because... That's the right answer for everything Is that the right... (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's the best because there's so many characters in it that... I mean, everybody thinks they're Gandalf, but you're actually like Frodo. We're all Frodo. We're all Frodo. Yeah, just whining and (laughs) and hungry and tired. That's me. But you wish you were Aragorn or, or even Sam, but I think it's Lord. We all need a Sam. We all need a <laughs> Yes, 100%. <laughs> Everybody needs a Sam. What is your favorite mom dish? Mom dish? Like a dish my mom makes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ooh, this is going to be tough. Don't give me the political answer about everything <laughs> she makes is great. <laughs> I was about to say that, but it's got to be a throwback. I'm going to go meatloaf. How's mom make it? I have no idea, but because it's, <laughs> it's a meatloaf, I, it's, a it's meatloaf. Yeah, it just comes out, like, and I think that was especially my favorite because I liked it more than my siblings, so I had to fight for it. I had to be the one that's like, no, we we want meatloaf tonight, right, guys? Like, we want that. But yeah, that's the one. The little politician in you was coming up to get that to right. campaign for the getting all the votes, getting that's all true. the votes for meatloaf. Though her cheesy grits, but again, we were all on board with the cheesy grits. So, Gee, that, oh man, that you're was a man that. after my heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, delicious. What's your least favorite food? Mm, I'm pretty gluttonous, I think is the word. You know what I have little time for? Frozen yogurt. Yeah. Mm. F, F frozen yogurt. I agree. You know what I'm saying? What are we doing here? Give me Ben and Jerry's fish food. I don't just want ice cream. I want candy mixed in my ice cream. 100,000%. Like, yeah, just but, real bad. Like, if we're about- doing this, if you go into hell, don't go by an inch. <laughs> You don't want to have just barely made it into hell. We're going all the way. Full pint fish food. Wow. I mean, I'm a big fan of pink berry frozen yogurt and you put gummy bears. Yeah, in but that's why we kicked you out of New York and you have to move to California, Sharon. Yeah, that's so. I'm, I'm very LA right now. That's, that's so LA. I'm walking dead past <laughs> pink berry. I'm walking past it. We're no, going straight to the comic book store with their Ben and Jerry's, brother. Literally, yeah, literally you and me, I will go to the corner store and buy a chocolate Snickers bar. I'm a full-grown adult with a serious <laughs> job. Like, I'm an adult with a serious job, and I'm I'm eating ice cream in the middle of the day. I don't have any You got to live your best life. Standards, you got to do it. Yes, yes. Yeah. No scruples. <laughs> no standards whatsoever. Hey, the dairy bar, man. The dairy bar. Just going to say the it. The dairy bar, Cornell. Yes, that's right. And Cornell makes its own. And long rumored, because Cornell's ice cream is delicious, but you can't find it in stores unless you're on campus. And the rumor is that it's because the FDA will not allow any ice cream to hit the market with that much fat <laughs> and that much sugar in it. But it is it is so good. So great. Who is someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Oh, wow. My sister, I think. She is, of all of us, the funniest, smartest, and most interesting. She's had the more difficult life. All the stuff we were talking about, being Black, being mixed, living in a rural area. She had all of that, plus she was the only girl. And it's just made her, I think, the most fascinating person on the planet. Wow. Wow. 
Maybe we should have her on the podcast. You should definitely, if you did, you'd, <laughs> it's good to have me on first. Because after her, you'd be like, we don't need to talk to that other guy. Svante, last question. What does being a modern minority mean for you? It's a good question. I think, it, I think in some ways it means what it's always meant, which is responsibility. You have a real responsibility to, to chart a course that others can follow, whether it's on the big stuff. You know, I was the first black mayor in, in Ithaca's history. But there's also all of these, these little things. Are you creating space for other people, not just people who are like you, but other minorities, whether they're like you or not, which is why I so appreciate what you, you two do with these conversations on this podcast. And so I think it's responsibility, which is much of what it's always been. But I also think opportunity. There is just such an opportunity. The same thing that happened to me at 20, where what I thought was possible for myself suddenly got blown open when Barack Hussein Obama ran for and got elected president of the United States. There's such an opportunity for us, for us to do the same, break down walls, break down doors, run through them. That's great. Svante, I've been in such admiration of the work that you're doing, and we're watching, man, and please keep up the great work. And thank you for just taking some time to, to spend it with us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to Raman about comic books. <laughs> and that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi mom at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ModMinPod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. To this day, people still make the very same jokes that I heard when I was five years old. I mean, it was particularly a difficult name because I was growing up in a time and a place where it was just not tolerated to be so different and then to insist on being so different. At the same time, I was getting so many mixed messages. People would make fun of my name and then tell me in the next moment, but you should keep your name forever. It's a great name. And I would think, you're actually just lying to me right now because you don't want that name but you think that I should keep this name because somebody else gave it to me. And it made me think about how our sense of identity really gets mixed up in names that other people give to us. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.